Global consumerism is a $40 trillion a year phenomenon, which makes it the largest, most predictable investment opportunity on the planet. Who are the prime beneficiaries of global consumption trends? Mega brands. Welcome to the Mega Brands podcast series. I'm your host, Eric Clark. In this podcast, we explore mega trends through the lens of a global investor with the ultimate goal of identifying the most relevant, most innovative brands that are best positioned to become what I call mega brands. These are the brands that are customer obsessed, have a corporate culture of innovation and self-disruption, create products and services that are in high demand, that exhibit strong brand love from customers, are serving a global opportunity and appeal to multiple demographic groups. What's the reward for a company that meets these criteria? More revenue, more cash flow, higher market share, and the potential to reach the trillion dollar club. Please enjoy our next episode of Mega Brands. Eric Clark is the portfolio manager for the Rational Dynamic Brands Fund in conjunction with his partners at AccuVest Global Advisors. All opinions expressed by Eric and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of AccuVest Global Advisors or Rational Funds. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of the Brands Fund or AccuVest may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Hey, everybody, this is Eric Clark. Uh, I have a quick, well, it's not a quick update, really. It's It's the audio version of our institutional deck. I have broken it up into a few different pieces. You can find those uh, little pieces um, if you want shorter bursts of my voice and and data on the Global Brands Matter website under the Brands tab and the Dynamic Portfolio. But this one is being made without slides for the the podcast. So I'm going to drop that into the Spotify podcast. So you choose how you want to listen and for how long but I want this to be evergreen and timeless. And there's some great information here. So first of all, yeah, by the way, it's it's uh, Wednesday, May 17th, uh, just before cocktail hour. And uh, so I wanna rip through these slides and give you some good information. One from a very big picture kind of funnel perspective, and then I'll get into the actual brand's portfolio. And just as a reminder, why should anyone focus on investing in the consumer, in global consumption, particularly as a core allocation to somebody's portfolio. Uh, The definition of core is the central most important part of something. Since we know we have a home bias, it's it's at least 75% or more of everybody's portfolio, US stocks, US bonds. So the US and consumer spending is at the center core of this our, uh, of this economy, as well as our prosperity, right? So it's hard if you're a diversified investor, which you know our advisors are managing client assets, it's hard to ignore the single largest factor that's driving the economy in which our portfolios are tethered to. To me, it's silly, uh, particularly because these are great businesses and they have great long-term track records. So it's not as if you're, you're being forced or asked to allocate to something that has a dreadful long-term track record, great brands have wonderful long-term track records. So it's important though, 
This is not a U.S. phenomenon. 60% of world GDP is also consumer spending. That's where we get the 40 plus trillion dollar a year investment opportunity data from. And that just includes the primary countries, you know, Australia, Japan, India, China, Russia, Europe, Brazil, Mexico, U.S., Canada. It's even larger than that in the frontier and the smaller emerging markets. But, you know, those are all also localized markets where lots of, you know, multinational companies are still trying to break in. So the current addressable market, let's just say, is 40 to 45 trillion. But over time, it's even bigger than that as those markets get uh, get opened up. This year alone, U.S. retail sales, which has been going up for the better part of 50 years or so, eclipsed $7 trillion for the trailing 12 months. So, you know, there's a couple of things to infer there. One, clearly global consumer, consumer spending is important. We know that without a shadow of a doubt. And it's also pretty stable and predictable. It does slow down in times of deeper recessions. Regular recessions, really not so much. You know, in, in, the, in the financial crisis, 08, 09, obviously retail sales you know, kind of fell off a cliff for a short period of time and then ripped back pretty quickly. And then obviously in COVID, it fell off a cliff when the suits decided to close the economy or most of it. And we were forced to just shop in a few places, mostly e-commerce. But this theme is 7 trillion and the brands that are the most relevant, the leaders in those spending categories tend to be pretty stable, predictable growers with great long-term track records and yet nobody has ever put them all in one fund like the way we're doing it here, which is frankly the why, why I created this fund with AccuVest, because there was nothing that was lifetime spending, you know, from, from Gerber baby food and Pampers all the way up to Botox and hip replacements um, that was focused on leaders and brands. Nobody's ever done it still, surprisingly, which is good for us, but getting people to focus on that as a dedicated allocation sometimes is hard. It's so obvious that you think you're getting the exposure to the theme through the S&P 500 or you know, some of your active funds. But the reality is most indexes, most funds are pretty chronically underweight, particularly consumer discretionary and staples. If you look in the S&P 500, it's supposed to be the proxy investment to invest in the largest economy in the world through highly recognizable firms. That sounds like a great definition, but if that's true, and we know 70% of GDP is household spending, then why is the S&P only 17% discretionary and staples? That seems kind of disconnected from the, re the reality of what our economy has become, and that's a consumer nation. So again, we focus on lifetime spending, and we do it through all of the different categories of spending, you know, shelter, transportation, food and beverages, savings and investment, travel, healthcare, entertainment, personal care and beauty, apparel, education, tech and telecom, et cetera, et cetera. We do it much more broadly. So we kind of think this is a better S&P 500. Even if we get to the same place on our returns, this is just allowing you to invest in the actual real drivers of the economy. So to me, it's a lot more defendable than saying this is my proxy investment for the economy, and yet you're highly underweight the things that drive the economy. So just for fun, you know, one of the themes that we talk about a lot is 
Listen, if you are a loyal spender in a particular group of brands and the masses generally like those brands too and are big spenders, those probably are pretty good companies, which makes them probably pretty good stocks, which makes them investing in those companies a pretty decent hedge to your spending. And I'll use the Lululemon example. You know, if you, we, we all, I, I give this opportunity to the the gal that I was dating uh, pre-marriage in uh, when Lulu went public, Lulu was a very popular brand, not unlike Viore currently. And when you had an opportunity to buy Lulu stock on the IPO in, in 2007, you know, if you put $10,000 in that great brand that you are spending your, your money on and you just kind of closed your eyes and let it ride, over that period from 2007 IPO until the end of Mar of April in 2023, there were lots of, you know, boom and kind of corrections along the way, but you have 220,840 bucks now versus the S&P 500 at 38,000. So you had an extra $144,000 of gains or about $804 a month in uh, let's call it discretionary spending that was excess over an index return just because you decided to buy the stock of the company that you really loved. So uh, from a consumer perspective, you know, this is probably a really good time to do a quick update on the actual consumer and all the components because let's face it, uh, we closed the economy, we gave everybody free money, Everybody spent a ton of money. Their savings rates went from about 7% to like 30 because they were flush with cash. We then spent all of that money and our savings rates have gone down at, to a low of about 2% when normal is roughly seven and have moved back up to about 4.6 and probably going up a little higher as we get a little bit of caution with the economy. Maybe we're worried about our, our jobs a little bit more. We just want to rebuild some savings. So... The, the state of the consumer is an interesting one. And there's a lot of information for bears and bulls in some of this data. So I'll just go one by one, just looking at retail sales. You know, this thing, if you looked on a chart, kind of has been going up and to the right for decades. And then what happened in, in, uh, in COVID is retail sales went parabolic, right? We know things when they go parabolic, either up or parabolic down, they tend to mean revert pretty quickly. And that's what's happened since the peak in late 2021. Retail sales has been falling. Now, if you were just say, if you were just looking at the rate of change, you'd think, oh my God, retail sales is crashing. No, retail sales is mean reverting back to where it's always been in a range. Whether we go lower from here because consumers are retrenching, and there certainly is evidence to support consumers are retrenching, is anybody's guess. That, that, that's certainly the difference between a slowdown that's normal and in, in, in a band of retail sales that tend to be volatile or an actual real slowdown and or recession, which makes retail sales fall even further. And, you know, retail sales currently is where it is at the bottom of when it tends to bottom, other than when you have a pretty deep recession. 
it it kept going right through in 0809 it did the same thing in in covid in 2020 before it ripped back pretty quickly but even in the 2000 to 2003 slowdown retail sales didn't get much lower than it is today it certainly didn't stay there very long so we're certainly watching that pretty closely um, let, let's look at the, you know, the B of A, uh, credit card data just came out. And again, people are freaking out. Bears are using it as evidence that, oh my gosh, we're not using our credit cards. We're actually taking on more debt, which we are, but that data is only going back to where it normally is. You know, in 2020, because we had so much cash, we paid off a lot of debt. And so now about starting, it looks like about, you know, July of 2021, we started to take on more debt again after we, after our savings were depleted, but we did pay a lot of debt down. So there's a lot of things you can infer. Some people might be in trouble and there, and therefore they are taking out credit card debt and revolvers so they can live and pay their bills. Some people are just doing what they always do and playing the game with credit cards it's 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 a little bit more unclear, but bears will get bears will tell you that the consumer is really levering up because they're broke. I'm just not buying it. The data doesn't show it, and and the 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 B of A credit card data also doesn't show it. It shows a peak again sometime in mid to late 2021, and we have been that data has been falling ever since. But that's the normalization process. Again, it could go lower and that could be a real sign of a slowdown. Certainly, if you look at the action in small caps, the, the data is not particularly compelling, but small cap companies tend to struggle when the economy is, is slowing down and labor is really hard to find because big companies have the ability to pay and sometimes smaller companies don't. So within retail sales, a couple of things are happening. One, the traffic at retail stores certainly has been slowing. And if you look at the, the retail sales by component, what's actually working and what where consumers are spending is more on e-commerce, at least for now. Can't tell you why, it just is what it is. Frankly, I think it's because in, you know, if you were already an e-commerce believer, particularly with Amazon and things, in, in COVID, you just probably did more of it, but you always did a lot of it. The people that didn't do a lot of Amazon and Walmart and Target online probably got some enjoyment out of that. And so they're probably kind of anchored to that now going forward. So they, you know, COVID and that behavior change has kind of created online shoppers that where there might not have been plus the people that were always online shoppers. So if you look at where consumers are spending at the end of April, it's generally in the needs category. There's a little bit in services, but it's, and it's, you know, kind of some travel and lot, you know, entertainment, things like concerts, et cetera. Um, and, but the general merchandise category, usually kind of grocery is, is where we're spending still health and personal care, food and beverage, uh, e-commerce, like I said, and then food and drinking services, which is going to bars and restaurants. So we're choosing experiences and life with friends and family over buying more goods because we gorged on goods through the pandemic. That takes some time to work its way out. How many sofas do you need? How, you know, how much, you know, if you did all your home improvement projects, it's not surprising that Home Depot is, has had two quarters of negative comps, right? That takes a little bit of time. 
And then I think the big thing is, you know, if you look at NFIB, the small business optimism index, it has the negative side is that small businesses are as negative about the future as they have been in a very long time. And, and part of that is inflation, high wages, lack of available labor, and maybe some business trends that are deteriorating. But the positive part of this is rarely do we go much further than where we really are. The last time we were this low was basically 2012 or 13, and that was the bottom. And then the one time we were lower than that, going back to like literally 1990, was in the financial crisis. And there wasn't that much more to go below that before the market's bottom. So, you know, bears and bulls can read a lot out of this data and it's mixed, which just tells me there's going to be a lot of volatility in the monthly data that we get. But overall, consumers are pretty resilient and they've been, you know, they've been tapped out, so to speak, for 30 plus years. And yet it's only really happened one or two times in serious financial crisis or, or deep COVID uh, periods. Okay, so let's move on to the why brands. A lot of people ask, I get why consumer spending is a good thematic for an investor. Why would you anchor to brands over something else? And, and there's a couple of reasons for that. So first off, the brands, the best brands tend to fall into consumer discretionary technology and staples as a sector, okay? And it just so happens, maybe not surprisingly, that those three sectors tend to be pretty good performers over the long term. Doesn't happen every year. Last year, consumer discretionary and tech uh, had a very difficult year. They have both since ripped back in, in year-to-date period for, for 2023. And then Staples tends to lag in bull markets and then tends to do really well in difficult periods. So Staples had a good year last year and they're lagging this year so far, but I have a feeling they're going to have, have some resurgence here as the economy slows. So we're, we're kind of when we when we choose to anchor to brands, we're tending to anchor to a few sectors that tend to do well most of the time. So that's a bit of a you know that's a bit of a tailwind just from from what pool you're fish, you're you're fishing from in general. And then from a brand perspective, uh, the the best brands, the eight hundred pound gorillas in certain spending categories that are really important in a consumer driven economy logically should do pretty well. And, and if you look, I actually looked through our brands index and I, and I broke down and I pulled up 10 of the most relevant, most dominant brands across tech, discretionary and staples. And I equal weighted those model portfolios, rebalanced them annually, and then looked back you know, over a 10 year period. And not surprisingly, they were super solid very good market. Be I mean, even consumer staples, when stocks have been great over the last 10 years, the, cons the, the top 10 consumer staples outperformed the market by about 100 basis points annualized. The consumer discretionary did it by about 600 basis points. And, uh, and then the technology brands did it by, gosh, like 1300 basis points and even outperform the NASDAQ by about a thousand basis points annualized. So, you know, if you anchor two leaders from within great sectors tied to the consumer spending theme, you're just giving yourself a lot of great tailwinds to make money over time. And I think the why is important. What really makes a great brand 
is this process, what I call this flywheel of brand loyalty and brand love and brand relevancy. So what happens is brands, you know, we all have our this emotional connection with our favorite brands. That fosters a lot of loyalty, which creates a lot of word of mouth. We tell people, we tell family, we tell friends, we talk about it on Twitter, on social media, et cetera. That brings in new brand loyalists, which creates this wonderful cocktail of pricing power and a good network effect with great economies of scale, which has lower unit costs for the company, which increase profitability and drives competitive advantages. That leads to market share gains. And all of that stuff rolls into the single largest driver of stock market performance and that's superior operating metrics. And so that's really why why brands are so powerful because of the, the what, what creates a company to, to become a brand and a mega brand are the things that keep it a great business and usually a great stock performer. And, and that, you know, people don't necessarily talk about why brands are so important and why they're, they've been such per performers. So I wanted to, 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 uh, to go through that. You know, we do have a little bit of, listen, we don't get it right all the time. Nobody does. Sometimes, you know, in 2022, we lagged pretty handily because we should have been more defensive, even when our companies were doing exceptionally well. The market just didn't care last year what if you were growth or you were tied to the quality style factor, the market just took you down regardless because your multiple had to get cut, you know, because interest rates and inflation were up, blah, blah, blah. And lo and behold, now a lot of these names are right back to all time highs. So the whole exercise was pretty stupid, in my opinion. But we do have a little advantage because we have this this brand screener. And it's a very detailed spreadsheet that pulls real-time operating metrics from the companies that we follow, which is 200 brands. And we can see them all on one dashboard. And we break it out into lots of different style factors across growth and, and operating metrics and free cash flow and valuation and ROICs and free cash flow yields. EPS beats, all those kinds of things. And so anytime we want to just see what's happening under the hood, we can show, okay, if, 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 if quality metrics are what's driving the market, then I want to have a lot of brands that have high ranking quality metrics. So I can go into that screener and with a drop-down menu, I can show which brands screen the best on a bunch of different things. And then when you see brands that score well across a variety of things that are all working, that makes you feel pretty good about owning those companies. So it's a really great, uh, you know, tool to help us with our stock selection. Now, from a brand perspective, I also wanted to show and, and talk about, I created a hindsight portfolio and it was just to highlight why, you know, consumer discretionary and tech and uh, a little bit of tech and consumer staples makes for such a good steady eddy portfolio over time. And so what I did is I just took really important spending categories. I chose a couple of, it could be one, could be one or two or three, depends on the second, the, the industry within the sector, which brands were the most dominant and relevant brands. And I got it diversified across a lot of different spending categories. And I put it into a 45 stock portfolio that's hindsight, look back, and rebalanced annually, equal weighted back to 2001. And the result of that was, I knew it was going to be good, 
hindsight's always 2020, but I didn't know it was going to be this good. And, and the, the annualized return for this basket of 45 is 19 and a half percent versus nine and change on the S and P. Now, wouldn't it have been wonderful to have the, the benefit of hindsight, but it does speak to the fact that these are great businesses. They've shown you they have tremendous long-term track records. Bandit, back to 2001 is a pretty long period of time, long before interest rates were just at zero and have fluctuated. And some of these brands have track records going back into the mid 80s as public companies. And the same story is true back there. And again, it doesn't happen every year. The, the key is when it doesn't happen, that's your key to start adding more exposure because you know how the movie ends. That's the most important part. Not that they do well in a bull market. Everybody, everything does well in a bull, but what doesn't do well sometimes, but you know does well long-term offers you that aha moment that I should put more money to work. Even if you don't get it if you don't nail the, the absolute bottom, I've shown you know lots of charts about great brands where if you just blindly bought the more of these companies when they were down 25% from recent peaks, it, even if you didn't catch the bottom, it didn't matter as long as you had three plus years of time to wait, right? So, so that's the key. And what I thought was really interesting is, you know, if you listen to me at all and, and, and or have our portfolio, you'll know that about 22% are in the private asset managers, Blackstone, KKR, Apollo. They've been monster performers as stocks since they've been public. They have massive outperformance in their funds across all the different categories of private credit, private real estate, private equity, and infrastructure, et cetera. Uh, and they, they offer a smoother ride for investors along the way because they don't have to mark to market every day. Public managers just hate that, right? We all have to deal with the day-to-day -day casino called the public stock market. They don't have to deal with that. And that's a good thing. Company value doesn't change the way the public stock market indicates every single day. This is a casino in public markets. But what's interesting about the hindsight portfolio is it basically equaled the long-term performance of private equity, which is a stellar performer. It just had a heck of a lot more risk, almost double the risk, simply because it was public markets. And again, it's validating why you might want to have some exposure to this theme. Okay, let's talk about the fund. And I'll, I'll read the disclosures for the fund at the end. But the, the Rational Dynamic Brands Fund is a fund that we sub-advise and we invest in global brands, but it changes over time because consumption habits change over time. Like I talked about in the consumer update, consumers are a little, they're a little tight right now. They're, they're, they're making decisions on what they spend on because we've been overpaying for everything for two years and we're not going to keep doing that forever. You know, you now we're deciding, okay, I love that restaurant. I know it's more expensive, but boy, the food's really good. The atmosphere is great. I'll spend money there. I don't really need any more stuff for my house. So I'm going to defer those purchases later. Or I don't, you know, maybe I can make my, my, my sneakers last another two months through summer so I can go on vacation and, and have, you know, a better vacation and, and eat out on vacation or rent kayaks or whatever the case is. So consumers are making these these slight changes and so that the allocations to certain brands changes over time but what's interesting is the correlation to the fund returns and the hindsight port uh hindsight 45 
portfolio great returns. Since we took the fund over October of seven, October of 2017 into the peak of the market, November of 2021, the correlation to these two things was really high. I think our annualized return for the fund was about 23% versus 17 and change on the S&P. And the, the, the hindsight 45 was about 21 and change. So there is some correlation to this thing. And again, in 2022, the, the brands fund just deviated radically from the hindsight 45, simply because we did not add a bunch of defensive staples to the portfolio. And that's the mistake we made. I, I own that 100%, right? Our, my, my, our and my only excuse was that at, at the fundamental level, our companies were crushing it still. Uh, and we were like, I don't, I don't the, the fact that this company is going down and Amazon was down over 50 at one point, Meta was down 75, um, which is the old Facebook, LVMH was down 30, Nike was down over 40. There was zero reason that those companies should have had price depreciation like that, other than just algorithms and people just saying, I just, the, the interest rates are going from zero to five. The Fed's really aggressive. Multiples need to come down. Let's sell growth stocks. Silly, because now look where we are. Most of these are back to all-time highs. But but that's that's the main point of difference between those two. And and this is important for for financial advisors in particular who who like to buy funds or, or ETFs. The concept goes the same, right? We all love to buy the prettiest fact sheet, right? Um, one, three, five, 10 years since inception. Wow, you, you beat the market. One, I love the story. It's logical. It makes sense. Two, the fact sheet corroborates that it works. So I'm going to buy it. Well, sometimes that's good. Sometimes that's the worst time to do something and the worst decision to make, buying the prettiest fact sheet. When we took the brand's fund over in 2017, we inherited an absolutely dreadful track record from the other sub-advisors. On the three-year, we were like 751 basis points annualized under the market. On a five-year, we were 700 under as well. So if you just looked at the fact sheet, you would think, I don't know what this is, but it looks dreadful. I'm not going to buy it. Probably a bad idea in hindsight. Four years later, converting it to the brands fund into the peak of the market, our not only did we get rid of all of the deficit that we inherited, but we ended up the three year with a 243 basis point overage over the, over the market and a five year that was 116 over. So since inception um, in 2017, we ended up beating the market by about 300 basis points annualized, right? So sometimes buying something with the worst looking fact sheet turned out to be the best opportunity, aka buy good things when they look terrible buy good managers when they look terrible. When I used to work at Natixis, Oakmark was way out of favor. And I used to say, you need to buy really smart portfolio managers when they look really stupid because they don't get stupid. Their style is just out of favor. And that's what this was here. So fast forward, we, we get a lot of money into the fund right at the top. Everybody loved the story. They loved equities. They loved the track record and the fact sheet. Oh my God, Eric, you're, you're just absolutely brilliant. You've, you know, since inception, you've beat the market by 300 basis points. Let's just plow that money in. Well, 
2022, we were down 35%. Most of those people bailed, right? Turns out they didn't really believe the theme of consumer spending being important. They were just chasing returns. And I hate to see people go, but frankly, I would rather have people that understand the thesis and why it's important because they tend to stay through difficult times. And more importantly, they tend to add through difficult times. So the question now is, okay, we're, you know, we're well off the bottom since October 14th and the low there, which was about the low, the fund and the hindsight portfolio, the hindsight 45 are up a little over 20% over that period. And so now people say, well, geez, did I miss it? I don't want to, you know, I'm still really nervous. I don't really want to add to the, you know, to the fund now, or I just don't want to buy any new equity funds after I missed the bottom. I didn't buy the bottom. I know I should. It seemed smart in hindsight. But what's important is if you look at the current fact sheet, and I'm going over the Q1 2023, the most recent one, because of last year and how difficult last year was, the fact sheet still looks subpar, underwhelming, right? But that's the opportunity. One, we know consumer spending is important. We know tech and consumer discretionary tends to outperform. We know brands tend to play in those state those sectors. So now you're now the opportunity is actually you do have some some room because the movie says the ending of the movie says that we're probably going to start outperforming again and the fact sheet will again look like we've outperformed the market over all time periods. There's still some time for that. The one year is still below the market. The three years still below the market. The five years still slightly below the market. So you haven't, yes, you missed the bottom. I have no idea what's going to happen in the next six months, three months, whatever. But I can tell you over the next three years plus, and that's how most of our clients are investing. I can tell you that we're going to do what we did in the first four years. We're going to make up for lost ground and some of the some of the deficits that we currently have. And I'll use another fund that's uh, that's used to be a darling in the in the industry. The best growth fund in the history of growth funds was the Morgan Stanley uh, Insights Fund, managed by a team that's unbelievably smart. I have a lot of respect for Dennis Lynch and his and his team. They literally since 1996, I believe, is the start point. That fund annualized about 13.5%. And since the bottom in 09, that fund annualized at 28%. It was the number one fund in the large growth category, which was the best asset class, the best style box since 2009. It was literally the number one fund for all time periods. And you just couldn't beat them. They raised a bunch of money, of course. 2022, the, the fund was down 61%. Okay. I would argue now, now since the, the bottom in December, that fund is up 30%. So you certainly missed the bottom and you should have bought great teams and great styles when they were drastically out of favor. You can even say that probably about ARC, but I would buy Dennis Lynch over ARC all day because they buy companies that are a little more mature, but are still big growers. But you know, I would argue you should be buying, you should be considering Dennis Lynch's fund on pullbacks too, because they have a long-term track record of success and they look short-term terrible. In fact, that fund now used to be five stars. It's one star. I will tell you that Morningstar rating is so stupid. 
right? From five star to one star because of one year, I'm not buying it. It's a great team and a great fund. So, you know, long story short, great companies when they go on sale and they do on occasion, I have a chart in the deck that shows these great businesses since inception, what their return has been versus the market, some radical outperformance for Apple, Google, Estee Lauder, Intuit, Nike, LVMH, Lulu, Microsoft, Domino's, Costco, even Target, Williams-Sonoma, uh, Accenture, Lowe's, NVIDIA, Netflix, Amazon, et cetera. But they weren't without negative calendar years. I mean, Amazon's had 15 calendar years. Amazon's, that uh, was Apple, sorry. Amazon's had eight calendar down years. Nike, nine calendar years that were negative. Target, 15. Williams-Sonoma, 12. Thermo Fisher, 15. Lowe's, 15. All the while, they compounded well above the S&P 500. But the moral of the story is, you should buy great businesses when they turn in a negative calendar year. Therefore, you should buy a fund that invests in a basket of great businesses when it turns in a calendar year. Not rocket science, people. I It is not rocket science. And, and the average forward three-year calendar returns of great businesses tend to be well above the long-term average of stocks, aka 10%, when you buy them after a down negative year. Okay, on the fund itself, the only thing I want you to know here is that it tends to be pretty concentrated portfolio, 25 to 35 stocks, we're probably 28 right now. 80% or so is mega brands, those stable blue chip brands, market leaders, global franchises, you know, think Visa, Nike, Lululemon, Costco, LVMH, Apple, you know, Amazon, those kinds of names. And the other little bit will be innovator brands or what we call emerging mega brands. And those are things that are just emerging leaders that are doing something different, doing it much better, growing a lot faster, probably are a lot more volatile. So they're sized accordingly. And then occasionally we have some tactical opportunities to just do a short-term short-term trade. Um, I've been doing that a lot uh, in Q4. I put on a tactical trading basket and we've since uh, closed out most of that. And most of those were held for a month or less and had great 10 to 30% gains. So that sometimes you just get a great opportunity to put to, some money to work for a very short period of time because the trade's so obvious and it's a, it's a pretty low risk reward given where it is and what the setup looks like. And then lastly, the prospectus is pretty flexible. We can hold up to 40% in cash, but we do focus on lots of macro data, Federal Reserve policy, interest rate, direction, dollar trends, volatility across cross assets, credit spreads, all those kind of things are just pieces of the puzzle. And, and they, they tend to help us decide whether we wanna be full on in beta, aka more cyclical in nature or you know more defensively oriented with staples and healthcare and or holding a bunch more cash so we do have a lot of flexibility i wish we used more of that in 2022 but as i said the companies that we owned were doing incredibly well okay the last bit is just the actual portfolio as we see it today it's it it will change over time um, without notice one of the new names that we added is really exciting because I think it's pretty timely as the economy slows down and people really spend on needs 
over, you know, every want that we have as our belts are getting tightened. And as we're a little more nervous about the economy, some of the things in your medicine cabinet are really valuable because you got to replace them. And, and the, the companies that, that are stable and predictable are really interesting in the consumer staples and, and health and some to, to some degree in the healthcare sector, Johnson and Johnson recently spun off their consumer health brand, which is, the, which is, it was the largest co company dedicated to consumer health brands. And they, they spun part of it out. They're going to continue spending share, spinning shares out over the next 12 months. The new company is called Kenview. The symbol's K-N or K-V-U-E. And it's got great brands. I mean, Benadryl, Band-Aid, Zyrtec for your allergies for allergy season on the East Coast, Listerine, Neutrogena, Aveeno, Tylenol, Motrin, Pepsid, Johnson, you know, like the Johnson baby shampoo and products. So great business, 15 billion in revenue. They'll now be able to do some acquisitions, you know, just, just a wonderful addition to the portfolio. And I look forward to holding that one, I think for a long time, unless defensives just get so expensive and cyclical brands get really cheap because the market slows down, you know, we'll start using some of the defensives as a source of funds to get more beta at much better prices. But I really like this and shows you kind of the kind of brand we might want to add. Now, looking at the overall portfolio, there are some themes within global consumption that we are exposed to. And some of that is static and it, and it never really changes. And some of it changes over time. But right now, there is this theme that hasn't added much value to the portfolio for over the last 12 or 14 months, but is a future source of big outperformance. And that's the growth of alternatives. People putting more money out, you know, carving money from public securities, stocks and bonds to private securities, private credit, infrastructure, private equity, those kinds of things. And Blackstone, KKR, and Apollo are the three 800-pound gorillas in that industry. They are wonderful businesses led by some of the smartest people in the world, smartest investors. And they have like multi-decade track records of outperforming public markets. And those stocks are just resting and they're about as cheap as they tend to get over time. And so, sorry, my dog needed to, to chime in. He needs to be, his feelings need to be addressed. Sorry about that. Um, but you're getting paid, you know, uh, almost a 4% dividend in Blackstone, uh, a 2% or so in KKR and about 3% in Apollo, and they're buying back stock. So I love that allocation. It tends to be volatile because their businesses can be volatile, but they raised oodles of money over the last three plus years. And eventually they're going to put that money to work and their earnings are going to rip higher as they start collecting fees and performance fees for that stuff. Within the life sciences and, and aging society thematic, we have exposure to managed care with United Healthcare, Eli Lilly in the pharma and bioscience innovation with great obesity, diabetes, and Alzheimer's drugs, as well as others, as well as the, the instruments and tools leader in Thermo Fisher. All of this stuff can't get done without diagnostics and Thermo Fisher is a leader in that category. And so we're about equal weight in the healthcare and life sciences, biotech versus the, the index. 
but I would, they, it, that's been a laggard year to date. So that will be an area that I'd like to add to because they were strong performers last year and they're just resting, I suspect, as beta gets more, more attention. Within the consumer staples category, I, gosh, I, I would have loved to have had this portfolio in 2022. The performance of the fund would have been much better, but we're, we're kind of diversified across all the spending categories that are, that are, I just talked to you a little while ago where consumers are still spending money in the needs category. And so that's things like food through Hershey's and restaurants through McDonald's and Domino's pizza, which is on sale and probably as cheap as it's been in a, in a, in a, at least 10 years as well as some beverages through Pepsi and Coca-Cola. And you also get some snack exposure with their snack divisions, uh, as well as retailers with Costco, which is still doing really well, and Kenview, which I just talked about. We, we put a little bit of exposure in Starbucks, and I, it's, a, it's a fairly expensive stock. So that's a really small position that I intend to build up on dips as this thing goes down. Um, so, so again, some of these will be used as a source of funds if cyclicals come back down and, and those prices get more attractive and we get to a, a trough point in the economy, because then I'm going to want more beta in the portfolio. But for now, I love the balance between offense and defense that we have. Another is athleisure through leaders of Nike and Lululemon, but we also do have this emerging brand uh, in Decker's brands. Now, you know, you probably don't know Decker's, but they own the UGG brand, which the footwear, as well as the Hoka sneaker brand. And Hoka has been growing about 55% a year for many years now. And they, but they're still small as far as market share goes in the industry. So there's a lot of room to grow there. And, and frankly, I, I think that business is probably worth almost what the entire market cap of the company is worth. So you're getting UGG and and you know their other stuff probably close to free if not for free. So we still like that brand as work from home takes hold and people you know don't use suits and don't travel and they're in their leisure wear while they're working. Next is the the payments and and not using cash as much as your credit card and your rewards card. Eight hundred pound gorilla is there a Visa Mastercard with an emerging mega brand in Mercado Libre, which is dominating Latin America. Uh, more so every day and really growing fast. They had a recent great report. The stock, I think, still has 35 to 40% upside over the next 12 months or so, and, unless the economy just really takes down, you know, the uh, the stock market just pulls back dramatically, uh, which I'll just add a lot more Mercado Libre as well as, you know, Visa MasterCard. In the luxury category, we have uh, just sold off a few. We used to own Ferrari and, and Hermes, but they are very expensive, 40 plus times earning stocks. And we now just have LVMH, which is, um, which is, you know, Louis Vuitton and all the products and, and, and businesses under Louis Vuitton. Uh, Bernard Arnault is the founder and CEO, and he is the richest man in the world and luxury is where it's at and still doing well. And LVMH still only trades about 20 or 21 times earnings. So much more comfortable on a, on a GARP growth at a reasonable price perspective. And then the, the other part is in tech and, and tech and cloud and AI all in the same basket. We have leaders in Facebook, Meta, Google, Amazon, Microsoft, and Apple. Love those companies. We're a little underweight tech currently, which is hurting year to date. Uh, but a lot of the returns are coming from these mega mega cap brands. So our, our allocation to the right names 
certainly is is doing well and one of the reasons why we're outperforming. And uh, I'm happy to add to all of those on any dips that come. And then lastly is is a small travel and recreation, uh, you know, uh, allocation. And we're kind of doing it a little bit in the dumpster diver category because we just added a small allocation to Disney. I think it's finally cheap enough and close enough to trough that it warrants taking, you know, uh, an, uh, an allocation and building it up because I think earnings per share growth is, is probably bottom this quarter or next and EPS should grow over the next uh, couple of years. And I think that stock is, is worth a heck of a lot more than where we bought it. Um, so, you know, because it, it went down at least 10% after earnings, uh, as well as, you know, Airbnb, Airbnb is not cheap, but they're, you know, they're a pretty asset light business that generates pretty good free cash flow. The stock pulled back about 15% after a good earnings report because they decided they were going to spend more on marketing that they haven't been spending on because consumers are tightening their belt. They're more price conscious and at the lower end is where they're seeing demand. And so they're going to do a lot more uh, marketing to people that are looking for uh, hotels and home sharing at the lower end. So I like the business model. It's not cheap. So certainly I would like to build that one up on dips because I think they are much better than the hotel business because hotels are just providing terrible experiences, generally speaking, these days with a lack of staff and they're gouging people on price. And then live events is still doing well. Live Nation you know, before the pandemic live, we had Live Nation. It was a strong long-term performer. Obviously, it was a difficult company in a difficult industry. We we bought it through the pandemic and made a great return. We sold it. And after seeing that last quarter, I wanted to, to start adding to it again, even if it was a little bit higher. I, it's still well off the highs. So I still think there's a lot more. And that that is one of those categories in want. But man, if you are a live events person, that is an area that you are willing to spend on, even if prices are higher and you'll defer other price, other spending because you just love that concert or that sporting event. Just lastly, I wanted to talk about what you can expect from the fund. It's great for small accounts. It's great as a core, okay? We do tend to be mostly in large cap. So you can always count on it being a large cap fund and and mostly a growth fund, although it's more growth at a reasonable price. But we are not tethered to that style box. Roughly 50% of the fund is in large core, 50 or you know about 49% is in large growth with the rest of it being in mid and, and, and small cap uh, with a little bit of large value. So we will move around and we will sector rotate. We generally are overweight consumer discretionary all the time for obvious reasons. We are less overweight consumer discretionary than we tend to be, but on any further price weakness, you can expect us to beef up two areas, consumer discretionary and technology. We are underweight tech currently, overweight consumer discretionary, but we will be much more overweight discretionary and much more in line to equal weight of, of tech if we do see a pullback. We are overweight in consumer staples with some good defensives and balance and roughly equal weight in healthcare. Uh, but again, that will change. We're overweight in financials right now with no banks. Our financials exposure is Visa MasterCard and Mercado Libre, which uh, Visa MasterCard just moved over fr from technology. Uh, and 
our financials is asset managers in the alternatives category. So we don't own regional banks. We own the beneficiaries of, of all the banks pulling back on lending. And that's the people that are lending in credit, private credit, Blackstone, KKR, and Apollo. So, you know, do not expect this fund to be tracking an index. If you are an index investor, go buy the ETF, pay five or 10 basis points, and you'll get what you get. There's nothing wrong with that. This fund is a good complement to a couple of things. It's a good complement to an index investor because our tracking error is really high. We do not look like the index. We don't want to look like the index. This is by design. So it's a good complement to your indexing. And it's also a good complement to the large growth funds and large core funds that you have because of one specific thing. Most of these funds, I mean, I'm talking, I will bet you 90% of most large core and large growth funds are chronically underweight, consumer discretionary and consumer staples. That is what this fund will give you. So again, it's a good diversifier. Your large growth fund is going to be well overweight large growth most of the time. That's going to take up all the air in the room in those funds. We rarely, if ever, are overweight large growth. In fact, I don't think I've ever been overweight technology in there. So um, it, so it's certainly a good compliment if you want something that's that has that growth characteristics, but doesn't do it the way your typical growth fund via technology does it. And then obviously, it's a great core because the core of the economy is consumer spending. And the definition of core is the most important part of something. And that's consumer spending. So I don't know what could be a better core fund in somebody's allocation. Okay, everybody, I really appreciate it. I'm just going to read through the little disclosures on here because I can't show them to you. Investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the rational funds. This and other important information about the fund is contained in the prospectus, which can be obtained if you go to rationalmf for mutual fund.com or calling 800 253 The prospectus should be read carefully before investing. And the rational funds are distributed by Northern Lights Distributors. Uh, and Nor rational investor, rational advisors is not affiliated with Northern Lights Distributors. Past performance does not guarantee future results. There is no guarantee that any investment strategy will achieve its objectives, generate profits, or avoid losses. Important risk disclosures will be on the fact sheet, et cetera. You can get all the information on the fund and on the strategy. Go to globalbrandsmatter.com. Go to the Brands tab. Select the Dynamic Brands Portfolio sub-tab, and everything will be in there in data, in analytics, in buttons, in images, in audio, in video. It's all there. Thanks a lot, everybody. I really, really appreciate your time. Thanks for listening to Mega Brands, everybody. I'm your host, Eric Clark. For more information on this podcast and to learn more about the brand relevancy scoring system we use, be sure to check out the website at globalbrandsmatter.com. While you're there, make sure to sign up for the market newsletter and check out my latest thoughts on our favorite portfolio brands in the dynamic brand section. If you have any questions or want to learn more about the dynamic brands approach, send me a message on the contact tab. Thanks again for listening, everybody. Have a great day.